Welcome to the Wonderful Leaders Podcast, a place for Christian entrepreneurs and leaders to be encouraged and inspired to grow in your personal and organizational leadership. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Wonderful Leaders Podcast. Um, I've got a fantastic guest with me today who I'm super honoured and excited to spend a bit of time with. Um, and when you when you hear uh, his story and his bio and, and everything that God's doing in him and through him, you'll be blessed, I'm sure. So I'd like to welcome Dr. K.P. Johannan, who has been crisscrossing the globe for the past 40 years, challenging the body of Christ to discipleship. His call to a radical lifestyle with an all-out commitment to Jesus has left his, its impact on nearly every continent. Johannan is the founder of GFA World, a Christian mission organization deeply committed to seeing communities transformed through the love of Christ, demonstrated in word and deed. He is also the Metropolitan Bishop of Believers Eastern Church, an indigenous church in South Asia. And what I've just read there is the first paragraph of about a six or seven paragraph bio, because the Lord has used him in tremendous ways. And I want to get straight into questions. So welcome, Dr. K.P. Hannan. It's a pleasure to have you. Yeah, thank you. What a blessing to be with you. Um, um, one good thing, I can understand everything you are saying. Your English is perfect. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> oh, bless you. So, I mean, I've read out a very short piece of your bio. So please just tell us about yourself and what your leadership life looks like. Well, you know, people once in a while, especially when I first came to the United States in 1974 for going to seminary, uh, they ask about where I come from and explain. The, I tell them, you know what, <clears throat> if we can go and find the oldest black and white Tarzan movie. You can imagine the kind of place I was born and raised, a remote, tiny village, uh, no bicycle, no road, no cars, no electricity. Um, uh, But I had the awesome privilege um, uh, uh, by God's mercy that I was born in a home where my parents um, uh, both uh, knew the Lord, uh, Christians and um, uh, part of the um, Orthodox um, you know, very evangelical faith. Um, and, uh, um, but when I was a youngster, about eight years old, it was my mother who explained to me about that Jesus died for me and and he was buried in Ross again. I can uh, surrender my life to him and acknowledge him, which I did uh, in our church. And then, of course, um, when I was when I finished my high school, feeling that I want to serve Christ, I told my parents, and they said, "Yeah, you you should um, do that if that's what you want to do." I'm the youngest in the family. We are six boys. I'm the youngest, but that's when George Werwer, uh, the um, um, Operation Mobilization founder, and his people, um, they only been in India a year, I think. They came to my village, and they spoke in our church. And um, there was an Englishman, his name is Ron George, a tall Englishman, and he was crying his eyes out. And I, as a youngster, thought, what is strange, this white man is crying and weeping. But then I found out he was speaking about people that do not know Jesus, suffering and poor in many parts of North India and Nepal and all that, and telling people in the community that I was in, you Christians, you need to go and tell these people about uh, Christ 
And of course, you know, he spoke in English and somebody translating that into my native language. Uh, that was my journey or beginning of the journey. Um, went to Bangalore to attend their conference where I heard George Orwell speak on absolute surrender. Um, kind of one-way ticket, never look back following Christ. And I surrendered my life to full-time uh, serving God in that um, evening in Bangalore and went off with the teams to North India. Eight years I was there in all Northern States, Nepal, and with the Logos uh, to Indonesia and Gulf Nations and all that. <clears throat> but one thing happened. I never could imagine that I will go to communities, people by millions. Then I asked the question, have you heard of Jesus? Most frequent answer was, you know what? I've been living in this place 30 years, 50 years, or 60 years. No, no one by that name live here. Maybe you can find him in the next village. Some places people ask, what was that? It's a soap or some kind of food items. And that really cut deep into my heart that I am actually meeting people that never heard the name Christ. And of course, the passion of George Orwell and uh, the leaders and people like that had a huge amount of impact on me. And of course, my own mother praying three and a half years every Friday fasting without telling anyone that one of our six boys will go and serve God, which, which I did not know until two years after my life in North India went back home and she would tell me the story. But what I'm trying to say, you know, it's God's incredible mercy, like and Timothy that Paul talks about in 2 Timothy chapter 1, God's mercy that he saw me before the world began and called me from the tiny village where English has never been my mother tongue. Um, I had to learn that language and of course still learning. That's the reason I like your English. It's perfect. I'm still learning. But <clears throat> the journey from age 17, now I'm 71, I would say I don't have one regret in following my Lord. Now I'm looking a few years more here on earth. And um, if any regret I have of my entire journey, it will be, I wish I was more kind and loving and, and serving the poor and needy more than I did. But I, I just, the greatest privilege of taking Christ's love to people that never heard his name and planting churches among people that never had a church before. Uh, today, we have some 12,000 vibrant congregations representing 300 languages, some 4 million people, not just named Christians, but people who actually partake of the Eucharist and part of the worshiping community in a dozen nations. And so this is in, in, in very wow. short, it's just, it just been a glorious journey. Wow. And, you know, in all of those years, you've kind of glossed over so much of what, what God has done in you and through you. And I just want to just ask a little bit about, you know, you had that encounter with Christ. And you knew you wanted to share the gospel. But I know a massive passion of yours has been for just for discipleship and not just evangelism. So can you tell us a little bit about that journey and how that kind of led to gospel for Asia? Because that's been the kind of, as far as I understand, the, the, the overarching ministry that you've worked under in, in, in over the last few years. Well, a couple of things. I'm glad you asked that. You see, in 1974, um, um, I came to Dallas uh, for theological studies uh, at the invitation of Dr. W. A. Criswell, who was the 
one time head of the Southern Baptist um, you know, um, uh, movement. Um, then I, you know, within a year or year and a half, I was called to become a clergy or a pastor of a local Southern Baptist church. I don't know why they did it, but God did it, I think. Um, but I was there during my seminary years, uh, also taking care of the uh, 230-some families, not few church. Um, but, you know, in 1979, something happened. Um, I found myself, I couldn't cry anymore. That is, yeah, I talk about missions and giving and going and all this stuff like I was um, eight years on the streets of India and Nepal and uh, Bangladesh. I used to stand on the roadside and weep looking at multitudes that did not know Jesus. But now in America, I got my degrees and living wonderfully uh, like an American. All my information was right in my head, um, much more than you can imagine. But my heart was dying. And, and one day I said to myself, what happened to me? Um, why there's no feelings for the lost world? And it's like two different people I am. And, um, you know, it's a crisis. I said to myself, well, this is a weird, it's not a theology I'm promoting. I kind of thought I lost my salvation. God don't know me anymore. I left him. Yeah. And the only thing I could do now is get in business. And I actually made plans to get in real estate and make millions. And uh, that's my, and this was during that time, um, you know, um, I felt, you know, I knew him. I rode on the bicycles in the streets of uh, these nations and talked to Christ like he was riding with me uh, on um, uh, next to me or on the back seat. And I, it was just so amazing that, but now where is he? And I decided to take a week of silence and prayer alone um, if God will know me. And it was during that week of just being alone, praying, and like Indians would do, actually not sitting on the chair, although I had a beautiful study and library and everything. I just, you know, um, on the carpet, on the floor, and I said, God, I don't know you. You knew me, and I knew you, but I don't know where you are. It was uh, about five, six days later, right in the afternoon, about two o'clock. You know, I've never been a charismatic or spooky person, dreaming visions. I, I know that. I still I not. But it's, a, it's an amazing. All of a sudden, my eyes wide open. It's like a movie I'm looking at, literally. It is like millions and millions of people just flowing and just... Uh, you know, I, I said, I said, what is this? All of a sudden, all my eight, nine years of life came back in split second of people. I lived with the slums and beggars and leper colonies and all that. And, um, and I realized God knew me that he's doing something. And I, I, I blink my eyes trying to figure out if I'm hallucinating, but you are not. And, you know, the strange sound I hear from my heart I waited for this day so I can talk to you. And I cried and cried, not because some new revelation God was going to give me. It is that, that God knew me and he was watching over me. And, and I said, it's the biggest mistake came to America. No, it was not it. And then, you know, this is a strange thing, like somebody whispering in my ear, you know, I led you that you did not know. I watched over you. And 
I brought you here, but your life is not here for America, a handful of Christians. There's a world out there that I called before. Right. And, you know, I was so overjoyed. I kept weeping for the next several weeks because I couldn't figure out. I mean, if Jesus asked me at that time, jump off from a 10-story building, I would have done it. I mean, I'm not joking. Yeah, I was so lost in the wonder of, you know, the reality of Christ no more theology, but a person. And 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 anyway, that is when I said, Lord, what shall I do? My thinking was actually leave everything in the States and go back to North India and live the rest of my life uh, like a Hindu sadhu or something um, or nothing. But, but you know, the Lord was very good in speaking and, and guiding um, my life um, with my family. That is, um, I distinctly felt the Lord wanted me to resign from my pastorate and didn't know what I'm going to do next, except my life must be abandoned to reach a world that never heard of Christ's name. It all became real. And that's when we exchanged everything I could exchange, including the house we live in, car, everything, and kept a couple of shirts and a few pants. And I mean, everything was not that people should do these things to become spiritual. I didn't do it for that any reason. I have multi-millionaires, my friends, who walk with God than a poor person. So I'm not talking about those kind of things. But that was actually the beginning of Gospel for Asia in 1979, end of that year. And I didn't know what to do. So I would tell people what God is doing. And then amazing enough, God would, we start a prayer meeting actually for world missions. Um, and that was the beginning of it. We start recruiting people in Nepal, India, other places, and training them for a year in missions work and you know God's word and send them out to unreached places uh, to um, evangelize and plant churches. Uh, wow. Honestly, I can I, you know, write a thousand page about supernatural things God did. We had no clue how it was going to happen. And that's um, uh, my, my journey. And I, then and now, I always believed and still believe very strong, the older I get, God's method of changing the world is not money, computer printouts, and brilliant speakers and knowledge. It is broken lives that understand um, not just being lawyers and uh, promoters for Jesus and the gospel, but our very life becomes sacramental. Um, you know, um, and we may say not a word, Yet he is speaking through our lives if we know him. And I've been very extreme high on discipleship movement. I wrote dozens of books on that. But honestly, in the last 15 years, I no more talk about it. Because discipleship in the evangelical Protestant world, I think, I, this is my opinion, that people must forgive me if I'm wrong. I could be wrong. Philippians 3, St. Paul said, I do not seek my own righteousness. Now, I remember those, I would get up early morning and spend an hour and a half in reading Bible and pray, memorize Bible verses every day and talk to the X number of people every day about Christ and all that. But you know what? Inside, I was struggling with sin. Not that I was committing fornication or drugs, anything like that, but the, the pride, the arrogance and the lack of love and um, uh, promoting myself as a wonderful um, humble person, yet in my heart, I did not know uh, the, the brokenness of Christ. Wow. And um, I would do things for poor people 
um, because it was a wonderful thing to do, a nice thing to do. Um, I was more blessed than there, but that all I realized is a good thing to do. I mean, I would say I would take money from an atheist or Hindu or Muslim anybody to help the poor. By the way, uh, because better. all people are creation of God. I and I I call all people Hindu, Muslim, all people my brothers and sisters. Jesus died for all of them, whether they know it or not. Absolutely. And someday they will recognize it. So I, but my life, I'm convinced, do true discipleship is what it says in First John. We are called to live today as Jesus lived. And, you know, one time I took my New Testament and took my pen and went through every page of the four Gospels, only marking the man Jesus, how he lived his material possessions and, um, um, you know, when he was crucified on the cross, they didn't have 10 pair of beautiful luxury gold uh, gowns to, you know, distribute just one, one thing they had, they were going to tear it up. You know, this is contrary to the Western prosperity. You know, I mean, honestly, these are not a good words used, but I think many of them represent Satan and not Christ at all, that you believe in God, you'll get all the riches in the world and you will be the most um, blessed person. But in the New Testament, blessing is actually the grace of God for us to embrace the cross for the sake of a world that do not know him. And, um, and there are millions of people to understand this and journey with the Lord. So, the, I mean, here is a father and mother, for example. Um, by the way, he can interrupt and stop me anytime he want, because I keep talking like this. You know, if a father and mother who said they are radical, evangelical, Bible-believing, verse by verse, Greek, Hebrew, Bible-memorizing, upright, honest, uh, moral Christians, and they have three children, and the children will become 18, 19, 20, and they abandon the faith completely. You ask why? That is happening in America, in England. You think right. about that? Why? It is because they were educated. You know, we are Brahmins in India, priest Brahmins who are absolutely moral people. I mean, I had teachers in school like that. I'm telling you, they are they're far more moral, upright and giving than you can imagine. But that is, they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christians can't be like that. They call themselves Christians. But to know the authentic Christ, these children will watch their parents behind the door, not living for the things of the world. And they see when they grow up, um, that their parents are spending little on themselves and taking their money to help the poor and needy around the world. And I met a young man like that, by the way long ago in Nepal from America. And um, I, I knew his background. So I said, what make you want to leave America and come to Nepal? You know, climbing mountains and living like uh, these Nepalese and getting diary and, and he didn't say much. I mean, he was 24 years old at that time. And he said, well, if you want another story, I will tell you. He was born and raised in California. Very rich, affluent family. Uh, a church that I knew very well, uh, I live by name. Verse by verse, they teach every word and extremely biblical uh, Protestant church or evangelical church. He said, one day his parents and his sister, they were watching the television and they saw uh, um, a report from BBC or somebody from Bangladesh 
that in the typhoon tidal wave and cyclone 100,000 people died overnight wow. they showed pictures of mothers hanging their little babies on the top of the tree branches hoping the waters will not kill them but in the end they showed pictures all the trees were covered and all these people died and they and he said um my fathers didn't say a word and he went back up home bedroom and next few days he said my father didn't meet with us and after three four days he asked um, and his sister to the mother mummy why is dad not eating with us breakfast lunch dinner and he looks like something happened to him he's not happy is there any problem between you both and all that then the mother said if you sit down i'll tell you so he, she sat down with the children and explained you remember a week ago we watched that television they talked about bangladesh he said yeah, i do she said that night your dad didn't sleep he was weeping in the room repenting of the the self-centeredness and the riches we have and not having any feeling for christ and his people that and and she said you don't know this but he been sending away all the money and he is talking about selling a house and downsizing everything and your dad was not angry with me he's a broken man for the lost world and he's praying there and i and she said last week she's not he's not sleeping in my room he's in the living room on his knees praying and this young man said to me if you want to know why i'm nepal my parents never told me to become a missionary or give up my university i decided i want to follow this jesus that my parents followed you see um, this is discipleship the curse about england today the average one church building you know i love england so much because i'm indian i think i love the traffic system i love the old buildings i can live in those old cathedrals i think i i just am in love with these old buildings and uh, when i was in leeds my goodness i just would all day spend walking around looking at buildings but today those churches have been sold to hindus and muslims to become bars and dancing halls um and old abbeys been sold it breaks my heart what ever happened what ever happened to the anglican protestant church what ever happened to the independent charismatic movements it happened that the discipleship has become just mere words and self righteousness and activities instead of giving up this world and the love of things and spending at least one day of the week in fasting and praying for i mean 7 million people die in africa in the next 7 months of starvation it is a public news not christian news 7 million not because of covid because of the starvation as a result of covid india tens of thousands are dying of starvation and what are christians doing they are hoarding up more milk more food more clothes and more shoes more winter clothes living with catalogs in their bathrooms looking what they going to buy not thinking half of the world go to bed with empty stomach and naked bodies what is the discipleship i'm telling you bible has become the greatest danger for christians to understand the life of christ 
Pharisees memorized the Bible. They taught the Bible. They went overseas to mission work. And Jesus said, you are going to hell. And they said, why? I'm just explaining it. He said, well, the problem is the Bible talks about me, but you don't want me. Mm. To know and become is two different things. And I think I'm, honestly, I'm orthodox. That don't mean Protestants are wrong or bad. No, I, you know, George Werber is a hardcore evangelical and Protestant. He's still a hero and leader. I'm not knocking, but I'm telling you, the ancient faith and the humility and simplicity and I mean, this is not a problem with Protestant people alone. Orthodox and the Christianity as a whole in the Western civilization, we have missed it. We have missed the life of Christ and sacramental life. Uh, that is the reason why we are in such a mess. So we talk about discipleship. I can you know, talk all day long. And recently I wrote a book, by the way, Never Give Up. Um, it's a free book. People can get 230 pages. Um, it talks about the 15 years of my journey, in, in the 15 years of my life, knowing, you know, C.S. Lewis said something interesting. You know, he's one of my favorite, uh, maybe the favorite author I have in my life, C.S. Lewis. You know, he talks about now we, our experience like looking at a beautiful, beautiful flower and the, the scent intoxicate us but we cannot enter into it. And someday we will enter into it. But you know what? I'm convinced today we can enter into this beautiful life of God. Second Peter 1.4, we are called to partake of his divine nature. It is like you put an iron in the fire, which I used to see um, in my village when I was growing up, you know, and, and, and the fire turns the iron just like fire, but it never loses the ironness in it. You pull it out, it is all cold iron. We can't become God, never. We are creation. But the intimacy and knowing him, he impart to us his divine nature. And I no more become humbled by obedience I become humble by his life in me. And I think Major Ian Thomas talked a lot about it. The Saving Life of Christ is one of the books that impacted my life. Um, another Englishman, obviously. So anyway, I, I can keep talking about this thing, but I'm so privileged to know the Lord. And all what I do is simply his mercy and his grace. Wow, that is wonderful and very challenging. Very challenging in many ways. Speaking to you as someone who lives in England, and who understands the UK church and works a lot with US churches and churches in different countries. It's hugely challenging what you've said. You know, one of the, one of the graces that's, that's, that's um, coming through this COVID period is that the, the walls of the church and the programs have been broken down yes. and our structures are being broken down. There are a lot of people saying, Lord, what's next? Lord, there must be more. There must be more. And then what you're saying is the more. Taking on the life of Christ and its fullness is the more. Not new programs, not new structures, not new new bells and whistles, but more of Christ. So that was really precious what you shared. Now, one of the things I want to pick up on 
as you mentioned a couple of times about books. Now, you've published over 200 books in Asia and books in US, Canada and Europe. I mean, that's a phenomenal amount. And we that's a whole probably a whole podcast episode in itself. But if you were to pick one of your books or maybe one or two of your books and give it to the next person you meet, which book would it be or books would it be and why? Well, you know, I, I did all my popular I mean, I wrote 275 books total, by the way, by God's grace now. But um, most of those books are in 17 languages of India and Asian nations. And, um, you know, Revolution World Missions now, it's about four and a half million copies in print. That is, is a, a flagship book on missions. And I would give a copy. Of by the way, all my books are free for people to download. I don't take any royalty from anything I have done. It's all um, freely given to me. It's free. So people can download all these books from GFA World website. And if they write to us, we'll send them a copy free. But there are two significant books I, I wish people uh, would read. One is uh, Touching Godliness, which I wrote maybe five, six years ago, which was very important uh, journey in my own life. And the second book is the newest book, um, Never Give Up. And I, I think, again, I mean, I'm not saying anything new, but the new newest book and, and the Revolution World Missions has a lot to do with my um, journey with missions and now the latest book, Journey, in my uh, understanding of the living God, uh, the partaking of his nature, orthodox faith. Uh, but I'm there's one string I have that is, um, you live for Jesus, but if you do, that means you will care for the poor and the suffering and people that do not know the Lord. Um, so the, my world is very small in that way, but this is this is my journey. So anything they can get, you can go on GFA World and download all these things free or ask for it, we'll send them free. Oh, fantastic. What a blessing. And just, I want to just pick up on something else has been a major part of your ministry. It's been the the radio program, The Spiritual Journey, which is that true? It reaches more than 1 billion people in 10 languages. Well, you know, in 1984, um, somebody else thought used to convince me I should do a daily radio thing, which I hated. Um, uh, but I didn't, even my native language, I didn't have good understanding of my language, you know, not not classy language. So I did this 15 minutes daily broadcast, which I decided to take the Bible and make it so relevant through practical illustrations, examples, and um, um, it became a hit kind of a day, some five to 10,000 people write letters. Just, just one broadcast, by the way. But wow. my idea was take the, the Holy Scriptures and make it relevant. And the idea was also, I would say, 70% of my broadcast uh, about knowing the Lord, uh, whether they are Muslim, Hindu, whatever else, in, in non-offensive way, but, um, and then 40% or so about discipleship. So, I mean, I don't know why it happened. It happened. All of a sudden, it became a phenomenon. And then um, our missionaries in other languages can translate that. Now we have that in 110 languages. Uh, they take my script, but they can add or change anything they want. Uh, they stay with biblical values, not to deviate from there. Jesus is unique, and you know His love is absolute. And so that's, and I think they get 
communication from about a million people a year uh, asking for more information. It's 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 a um, um, again, um, I'm not able to do daily broadcast now because of my time, um, but I did 8,700 um, um, daily broadcasts. Um, now it is in all languages. And, um, um, you know, That's I, incredible. I, it is, um, I mean, we have hundreds and hundreds of congregations established as a result of people listening to the radio broadcast. Then missionaries will go because of the inquiry comes and witness and they lead people to the Lord and establish uh, Bible study and then become a church. Wow, that's amazing. How do you find time? Or how have you found the time to do all of those things over the years? Well, you know, people say very loosely, oh, grace of God and uh, mercy of God. I can say all that and all that. But I, I would, it's interesting, people ask me this once in a while. I, I would say possibly next to my mother, the most important influence in my life was George Orwell. Um, and I don't, I was, I was hardly 17 when I met him. And last year I was in England, uh, spent a day with him. I just can't imagine ever a human being remained the same from the day I met him even now. So radical. And I think subconsciously, and I was deeply impacted by his discipline and uh, his honesty. Um, I think uh, then you know, I make choices, very difficult choices. That is, uh, I want to do this and that and ask the question, you know, what does that mean for the lost world or knowing the Lord? And I would say more not to myself than yes to myself. And so it, it, to be honest, I would say who I am today has a lot to do with choosing to suffer. Not suffer means I've been beaten up and stoned and all that, but that is nothing compared to the suffering of embracing unselfishness and say no to myself and not to sleep. You know, I have a right to do a lot of things, but I can't because um, I think in a few years' time, I'm going to be with the Lord and I don't want to look back or the wasted life on earth. And um, that never means I criticize, condemn somebody else for what they have. You know, it's my journey. So I cannot say, okay, this is George Werber, by the way, never told me, uh, KP, if you want to be a real disciple, be like me, never. Wow. As a matter of fact, I mean, um, you know, I just watched his life and I was with him in Indonesia, in different parts of India. And my goodness, I, um, so that I would attribute quite a lot of my uh, choices uh, watching his life as an example. Uh, I'm sure there are people who don't like him, maybe, I don't know. Um, but in the same, my life, I think a lot of people who don't like me, that doesn't matter. Wow. So. No, that's amazing. And just want to kind of drill down a little bit into sort of the leadership side of what you've, you know, you've done and how mm -hmm. you've developed. And I'm sure you've seen all sorts of leadership environments, scenarios, examples, but what have been some of those leadership keys or principles that you've held on to in your personal life for all these years? What are some of those things that have carried you through as a, as a leader, as someone who's had to lead a, a global ministry? I'm sure you know John Maxwell. Mm. Um, there was a book he wrote. I preached for him in his church when he was in San Diego before he launched his leadership organization and all that. Um, I must have read hundreds and hundreds of books on leadership, but I'm telling you 99% of these leadership books are useless or has no significance in 
in leading God's work or representing Christ. Because what I learned uh, in the early days of my life, and I can tell you stories about it and write about this in the book, Touching Godliness, where I was 23 or some uh, 24, I went through a massive um, encounter with the Lord where the Lord confronted me of my arrogance and pride and um, a forceful spirit. And it, it's, 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 a, it's a big story. I can talk about it maybe another time. But um, that was the beginning um, of my understanding. The most important thing I must choose to embrace as a value which caused suffering is humility. Um, um, and Jesus said in Matthew's chapter 11, uh, I mean, the creator of the universe as a man now says, come, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Yoke means like when I was growing up in a rice farm in South India, um, buffaloes were used um, to plow the field and two buffaloes or two oxen then yoke put on them. They have absolutely no freedom. They just do whatever the man behind uh, the plow uh, does. And I watched it all my life when I was growing up in our rice fields. He said, give up everything of your freedom, your choice and everything and be mine and learn of me. That, by the way, I studied Greek and Hebrew to tell you enough. Uh, it is not memorize the doctrines. It is become like me. And, and then qualified, why? That's the only place Jesus talked about himself, I think, the way he talked about it. For <clears throat> I am broken and lowly and humble in spirit. And the way you become, I mean, any kind of leadership, um, I think the road of learning leadership from grade two, three, four, five, on high school and graduate and go on. It is the school of humility. And no one can make you humble because the Bible says, humble yourself. Yeah. If, if God were to humble me, then that's judgment. And I have to choose to humble myself. I'm metropolitan of the church. And today I go through struggles. You know, I'm in some country, people kneel and 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 want me to bless them this and that. And some places I go, you know, like Western countries, they don't care who you are. You know, I'm just, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, for example, you call me KP, I'm not bothered by that. But if some in Nepal or in, in, in Africa or some places, somebody addressed me like that, they, they feel horrified. How can they do that to him? But, you know, there was a time um, when I began the Metropolitan, I found people don't respect uh, metropolitan the way my culture or the ancient church culture. I used to be offended in my heart. And, and I said, this is strange. I did not know. Deep inside me, I was looking for honor and respect. Right. And then all I could do was quietly repent and say, Lord, I did not know such darkness deep inside me that now I'm a metropolitan of 4 million people and 29 bishops and all these things, and people should honor me. This is nothing but darkness and sin. And you know, and I said, Lord, I didn't have the strength to overcome this. Would you please help me? And the more I prayed and looked at Christ's life, I realized he became the slave of the slave. So what am I looking for? You see, so I'm, I'm 
saying still I have the struggle. Uh, not in that way, maybe. So I, I wish I could say, well, I learned this lesson of humility to be a great leader. No, as a matter of fact, I have several secretaries and you wouldn't believe just the other day I wrote an uh, email to, you know, one, I mean, that person being with us one year maybe we serving the church. And I said something in the meeting that caused that person to uh, get hurt. I mean, nothing personal, by the way, but something about something. So that person wrote me an email and said, uh, Metropolitan, I just want you to know I'm, I'm uh, hurt and upset by what you said in that meeting. And I said to myself, my God, um, I didn't even think that. So my choice now is to explain to him what I meant. But then my heart said, that is not the right thing to do. That brother is hurt. And he understood or misunderstood. My job is to ask forgiveness. Hmm. And so I wrote that email and said, look, if I explain all these things, that is not repentance or humility. I, I know I failed. I, I, I didn't think about it. Please forgive me. A lot of people humble themselves by saying, I'm sorry, forgive me to their children or their wife or husband. But really, in their mind, they got a thousand pages of explanation why they did it. That is not humility. And so I'm just telling you, even now I face this crisis. And, um, wow. um, you know, not too long ago, I called George Werber crying on the telephone and he was shocked. I didn't know why I was doing that. What happened, he was in Mexico and I was um, in Canada or United States, somewhere, somebody else in England. We were having this conversation and he said something that I didn't like. And I, I, I won't say blasted him and I said, George, you, you are wrong in this. You don't understand. This is not what I said. And then I corrected him. I'm George, the amazing human being. He said, oh, I'm sorry, KP. Uh, I didn't know that. But after I hung up the telephone, I was so gripped with fear that I talked to him the truth without respect. Right. And I called him. I said, George, um, please forgive me. He said, what happened? I said, what I told you may be correct, but in my heart, I, I, I lost my respect, which I have for you for a second. And please forgive me. And I, I was not joking. I was crying. And he was silent. And then he said, <clears throat> now I know why God blessed you. That's mm-hmm. all. And he prayed for me and hung up the telephone. I write that in the book, Touching Godliness, by the way. What the reason I'm saying, I'm not uh, over my struggles, but if you ask the question, leadership, I think this whole Western church um, leadership, generally speaking, again, it's all phoniness. How big a house they can have, how many books they can write, how much royalty they get. I mean, I heard recently about a guy who is the Protestant theologian uh, who spent, I think, $9 million to buy a house to his name. Where did he get all the money from? Okay, from right, righteously from Christian books. But whatever half of the world go to bed with empty stomach and naked bodies, what would Christ would do? This is the leadership um, uh, crisis. I, I just wow. uh, want to say, if anybody is an authentic leader, I can tell you the proof for me as a human being with five senses, it is going to be the materialism and the comfort and ease they live with. I don't know any other way to measure this thing. Wow. And all the people that I've spoken to, no one said that. Just moving on. In terms of 
you've mentioned George Verber a couple of well, several times. Yeah, seeing yeah. the relationship that you have, and, and and this would be a natural answer for you. But so, what leaders do you look up to, and or have you learned from? Well, I, you know, people that impacted my life in the last 15 years happen to be um, St. Anthony and uh, St. John Chrysostom. And um, uh, the English, I mean, I read, it, it's funny, I can't, I don't want to tell you how many books are, but I, I read, I speed read, by the way. So I, I read you know, three, four books at the same time, but I read endless books on the desert fathers, desert mothers, and everything watchman ever he can get hold of and the NWA Chaucer. And my greatest mentors um, happen to be people who are dead. Or I, I don't use the word dead as an orthodox. They departed and they are with the saints um, surrounding Amazing. us all the time, cloud of witnesses. So their writings, um, I mean, like St. John Christosom's writing on um, you know, wealth and poverty. My goodness, I recently read the paperback. It just gripped my heart. He talked about Richman and Lazarus. I mean, it's a classic to be read. Uh, then, you know, Roy Harrison, uh, Calvary Road, and um, William MacDonald, Two Discipleship. As a matter of fact, two books that became next to my Bible from the beginning of my journey. One is Two Discipleship by William MacDonald, second, Calvary Road by Roy Harrison. Right. So who who became my mentor? Um, Mother Teresa became a massive influence. Um, I don't know her person. She went to be with the Lord. But our sisters uh, of compassion, 700 sisters, they are nuns, like um, their people. But our people work exclusively in the leper colonies, 48 leper colonies, giving their life to serve the poor and needy. And so the influence in my life happened to be people who actually journeyed uh, with humility and authentic life. And Watchman's life had huge impact on my life. Yeah, yeah, no, incredible. I've read a lot of his stuff as well. It's, it's phenomenal. How has the impact of COVID-19 affected your ministry? And what are some of the challenges you see moving forward? And maybe what are some of the opportunities you see moving forward? Yeah, it's an interesting question. By the way, you are a brilliant um, interviewer or uh, asking questions. I appreciate your mind is working very well. Um, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, a lot of interviews about COVID. My answer being always one thing, that is the coronavirus pandemic problem in India and many countries we deal with is only 5%. 95% of the problem is starvation. I mean, think about 100,000 children living on the streets of Calcutta and Mumbai. All of a sudden, the entire city vanished. Not one car, no one human being. Where do they find people to beg from? To, I mean, I have I lived in Mumbai for six months. I can tell you this. And the Slumdog Millionaire, Millionaire movie, which became world-famous uh, movie, is not a story. It is a real story. I can tell you that much. So what coronavirus... Did it created, as you said, it leveled all humanity as one community, which I'm so grateful. England sending medicine to other countries, India sending, America sending. And I think God's mercy is in creating reality for all humanity. Secondly, this is a strange thing to say. You look at the life of Christ on earth, how many preaching he did, and how much healing and feeding the poor he did. 
you will be surprised that he didn't heal the 10 lepers saying, all right, you guys are sick and outcast and condemned, cursed. I will heal all of you if you will believe in me and follow me. No, he just healed all of them. And one came back. Jesus didn't say, what happened to the nine of them? I'm going to make them double sick. No. You see, coronavirus became for us the greatest opportunity in my lifetime to demonstrate God's love and mercy to people. Mother Teresa was asked 100,000 times, Mother, why do you do this thing? You are from Europe. I mean, what is this all about? And her answer was always one line, because of the love of Christ. Non-condemning, not putting down, rejecting people. You know, coronavirus season, we have over a thousand congregations in all these countries actually committed to cook food, deliver food. And there's a um, high court judge in Chandigarh, uh, Punjab, he came and gave to our bishop there 700,000 Indian rupees. He's a, he's a Sikh, not a Christian. And he said, Bishop, we here, you are the only people um, giving food and caring for the uh, suffering people, coronavirus uh, people. Uh, you don't think about caste, creed, religion. And he said, and then somebody else, I mean, you won't believe how caring people have become. And for us as a, a church, Believers Eastern Church, this has become, you, by the way, people can go to our website, be believerseasternchurch.org. They can, or gfn.org, they can get tons of information how coronavirus became our highway to help people to experience God's love. And tens of thousands have come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, not because somebody screamed at them Bible verses and condemned them, but showed them God's love and mercy. And people want to know why you do this. And that's, I can tell you, there's one family, our two nuns went with the food, 25 kilograms of rice and dal and all these things. And um, they do that based on the village sarpanj or the leader telling them who are the most suffering people in the community. And these two sisters went to his family, man and his wife and three children and delivered this food to them. And the man started crying in his 50s. And they, they, they said, what happened? He said, that evening he and his wife and children were going to commit suicide as a family. And he said, I did not know there's a God who cares. And he's not a Christian. And that is not exclusive one story. There are hundreds of stories like that. So coronavirus, I think for the church at large worldwide, not just America or England or all churches, I think it's an opportunity for us to be Christ now in our generation. And that whole family was spared from committing suicide. And, and they find hope. And our sisters did not, I mean, because by the look, they are nuns. They know these are Christians, but they never told them, okay, here is Bible, here is read this prayer. No, they gave help and walked away. But it will be a month or so before they're here again. Um, they're bringing food and pray for them, and not trying to convert them. No, people choose to follow Christ not by giving them any help, but by our love. Mm, wow. Yeah. Wow, what an incredible opportunity and answer to 
to what the enemy would want to use for destruction. God always yeah. for his yeah. love and, yeah. and the love of Christ. That's so special. Thank you for sharing that story. And, you know, I, I would love to talk to you all afternoon, but I'm very respectful of your time and, and you know, and, and the input. So I'm going to ask you one final question um, before we come to land. Looking back at your life and your, your leadership journey, what's one piece of advice you would give your younger self? I, this is really easy question to answer because I've been asked this hundreds of times during many, many meetings all over the world. And I tell them now what I know now, I say, don't try to do great things for God. Please, uh, God is not helpless, but get to know him. Spend days waiting before the Lord to know him. And I always tell them, if you can get a hold of St. Anthony's life, uh, written by um, St. John Christos and Athanasius, um, I said, you know, read his life. Not that you have to become like him, but it gives you uh, a roadmap what it means to be alone, to understand God and battle the demons that... Um, are holding you down from experience in the life of God. That honestly, I believe, is the key for leading um, the the people of the world to know God. I don't think anything else. Wow. Wow, that's incredible. Thank you, Dr. K.P. Yohannan. Thank you so much for your time, for your insight, for your wisdom, for your humility and displaying that to, to us and for everyone listening to the podcast. We're going to put a link in the bio for, for some of the websites and some of the books. And just want to thank you again so much for every bit of input we've had over this time together. Bless you. Bless your family and bless your ministry. Yeah. Thank you. When I come to England, which I hope in a few months, maybe I'll look you up. We can go for an Indian restaurant or, you oh, know. That would be lovely. I, I love fish and chips in England, by the way. I tell, <laughs> I tell joke, I'll come to England because I want fish and chips. <laughs> <laughs> you want fish and chips and I want an Indian. <laughs> no, the England fish and chips different from anywhere in the world. That's true. <laughs> that is true. God yeah. Bless you. Take yeah. care. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time and being kind to me. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Wonderful Leaders Podcast. To be part of the community, join our close Facebook group and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Simply look us up at Wonderful Leaders and we'll see you there.